and welcome to an all new Talking Foosball mini-series. This time around we'll be focusing on Borussia Dortmund. These days the Black and Yellows are firmly established in the Champions League. They've at times been Bayern's fiercest rivals for the title, but things could have turned out rather differently. This podcast is all about the rise of B4B in the mid-90s to their fall in the late 90s and early 2000s and their way back to glory. Today's episode is entitled Steine und Beine, which translates to stones and legs. Yes, we're going to talk about how Borussia Dortmund rose to the top of the Bundesliga and won the Champions League in the mid-90s. My name is Nick Wiltung and I'll try to guide you through this podcast series as best I can, but even I need some guidance when it comes to Borussia Dortmund and, well, when it comes to them, there's no one better than our in-house expert and author of the best-selling book, Borussia Dortmund, A History in Black and Yellow. It's Terry DeFallon. Hello, Nick. You were almost right about that. It is indeed a book. Uh, best-selling is a little bit of a stretch, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe after listening to this, some of uh, our listeners will be tempted to help me out there. But, uh, but thank you. For- I'm sure that you've sold more books than 99% of the world's population. So in my book, you, you are a superstar. So, okay, after a short break, we're going to take... A closer look at how Dortmund created their all-conquering side of the mid-90s, so stay tuned for that. Here we go, it's part one of our first episode in our B4B mini-series, and uh, let's start by taking a closer look at Dortmund in the 90s. Back then the club could point to a glorious past, as it had won the German Championship on three occasions, but all of those predated the Bundesliga, actually. The only national title that B4B had won during the era of the Bundesliga were two DFB pokals. Those wins came back in 89 and 65. That win in the 60s was followed by a win of the Cup Winners' Cup in 66. But all of that seemed to be a far-removed memory. Now, B4B had even been down in the Bundesliga too, and they had to fight with financial troubles on more than one occasion since those glory days of the 60s but now the club thought that they could turn things around so terry how did they go about uh, trying to accomplish just that well i mean it part came from the cup win i think in 1989 but the, the cup win I, I mean i don't think i need to remind you nick do i because obviously you are a Werder bremen fan and I'm sure that you all, well, you wouldn't have been around. You're far too young to have been around for the 89. I was three. Yeah, right, for the DFB Pokal in 1989. But, I mean, being a big history guy, I mean, you'll know that going into that game, Dortmund were, were actually, you know, second favourite, comfortable second favourites. That was a very, very good Werder Bremen team that was challenging for honours and they were expected to win the game. So it was something of an upset. Uh, but interestingly, I think that it signified a cultural change with the club. I think that the club's fans and the club itself started to believe that you know they there was a, a way forward for them to be perhaps becoming a, a top club again. I think that in the 1970s and the 1980s, as hard as that might be for a lot of people to to think about when you look at Dortmund now, you know, the Westfalen Stadion did exist obviously, but it had a much lower capacity. The club was in constant, almost constant financial problems, battling relegation or relegated at some point, 
And, you know, in 1986, I think it is, they very narrowly avoided relegation. They had to go to a replay of the relegation playoff with Fortuna Köln. That's how desperate it got. You know, and I think Dortmund fans' mindset back then was, well, we are not a big club. We're not a trophy-winning club. Our best years are behind us and we just have to deal with that. And it wasn't really until I think that the 1989 win that maybe that sense of belief began to creep back into the culture. But in fact, the real win was in 92, I think, was when they reached the UEFA Cup semi-final. Mm. And I think that that was, that was the big one because that's when the big cash payout happened. Well, uh, one thing that struck me about this 89 season and that DFB Pokal win and its consequences was the fact that, uh, first of all, you had a guy in charge of the team called Horst Koppel who was let go after finishing 10th the following season. Additionally, you had Michael Meyer coming in as the new sporting manager in December of 1989. Now, he really entered and made a big splash straight away by splashing out on a 4.1 million Deutsche Mark signing. The guy they signed was actually Fleming Poulsen, Danish international who uh, came to play for quite some time for Borussia Dortmund. But this was really an awful lot of money. I mean, 2 million euros doesn't sound much these days, but back then, in 1989 and 1990, this was an abhorrent amount of money. So, I mean, can you describe the impact that Michael Meyer's entry at the Westfalenstadion had? I think it signalled a decision to, to take a more progressive approach to running the football club. We take sporting directors for granted now, but in, in the 1980s, uh, they were rare. And the decision to appoint one was, again, I think a signalling of the, of the club's ambitions and the, and the desire to return to greatness and that it needed a sporting director to be able to do that. I mean, that run that you talk about with Horst Koppel, I mean, he finished, yeah, they finished 10th, but I mean, you know, they had a decent side, obviously. They had a decent side. Uh, they won the cup. And that run, it was one of the longest running runs. It wasn't the, it was, Bill kind of said it was a record-breaking run, but it wasn't quite the case. But it was a long, like, run without a win. And nobody understood what happened. It was just one of those situations where everything that went wrong just could have gone wrong, just did go wrong. I mean, Dortmund recovered, and finished 10th under Horst Koppel. But by that point, the decision had been made that they wanted to go in a, in a different direction. And what direction was that? Well, you look at Michael Meyer's appointment, and you've also then got a link of it and contextualise it with Koppel's successor, which is a guy called Otmar Hitzfeld, who was not necessarily a, a manager with a big reputation, and certainly not in Germany, but, I mean, was certainly sort of like seen as being a, an upcoming manager and a classic sporting director kind of appointment. That's the kind of thing why you appoint sporting directors is to go look into the managerial market, look into the coaching market as much as you do the, the players' market and find the next best coach that's coming along. And they certainly did. Well, so what did the signing of Hit Hitzfeld mean for Borussia Dortmund in sort of a historical context looking back on it now? Well, Hitzfeld is the manager of the team that won back-to-back championships and the Champions League. <laughs> so he is, beyond any question, the club's most successful coach in the history of the club, if you measure by trophies. If you measure by slightly different criteria, then you could say that it was perhaps Willy Meltup, or you could say perhaps it was, it was uh, Jurgen Klopp. But if you're looking at just the quality of silverware... You know, it's difficult to argue with what 
Hitzfeld did. He also oversaw the regeneration of that squad and bringing in some huge names as well. And also his relationship, I think, with Chapusat, for example, where they were great friends, benefited the club hugely. I mean, it was a step-up appointment. Whether it was seen as such at the time, I, I suspect not, because he was a younger coach and, and unproven in the Bundesliga. But in looking back in history, he elevated Dortmund into being a, a top German football club and in short order, a, a top European football club. Well, I mean, he went about it straight away doing just that. I mean, we talked about Horst Koppel and his last season. They finished 10th. Hitzfeld took over and his first season in charge was the 91-92 season. And in that season, Borussia Dortmund only narrowly lost the title to Christoph Damm's VfB Stuttgart on the last match day of the season. So, Terry, I mean, this is a great story. And it's a story of pain and hurt for many Borussia Dortmund fans still to this day. But... You know, these stories, they build character. So talk us through that final day of the dramatic season, the dramatic 91-92 season. Well, it's funny you say that, but actually the, the pain is really on Frankfurt's side. There's three clubs involved in this. There's Stuttgart, who won, and then there's Frankfurt, and then there's Dortmund. I mean, Dortmund had improved massively under Hitzfeld, but they were still regarded as being outsiders for the title. And I talked to Uli Hesse about this, uh, and it's, it's in my book, about how... The Dortmund fans, they celebrated Dortmund's season despite having missed out on the title because the change in character and change in the way of the, the playing style, the fact that they were playing such great football, they had good players, you know, was so profound that it affected the club in a very, very positive way. It affected the support and they were wonderful. I mean, I remember Julie telling me that, you know, it was crazy on the last day of the season, Dortmund had missed out on the title, but... <laughs> You know, the, the fans are on the pitch, they're chairlifting the players. I mean, they're celebrating. It's crazy. I mean, what happened was it was a three-way match for the title. I think Stuttgart were in the box seat, but Eintracht were the ones who could have actually won. And they were denied by Hansa Rostock. And it was a scandal. It was an absolute scandalous game. It was a penalty was not was not given that should have been. And, and they, the players completely lost the plot. And Dortmund, they failed to win their final game. But even if they had done, it probably wouldn't have worked out anyway. So it wasn't quite as bad as it, as it sounds or as traumatic as it sounds. It's more traumatic to look back on than I think it probably was to experience at the time. <laughs> right. But, you know, after coming second, Michael Meyer... And we're going to mention this name quite a lot uh, throughout this entire episode. He decided it was time to invest a little bit of cash into that squad. So he went about bringing home Serie A legionnaires Stefan Reuter and Matthias Sommer, both of them German internationals. And they came from Serie A, which was the biggest league at the time. So that wasn't cheap. But tell me, why... Was it such a big deal that B4B managed to sign those two players back in 92? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because I think they both had their own reasons for, for leaving. I mean, Stefan Reuter, I think, uh, and Matthias Sammer. I think Matthias Sammer had come from Inter Milan, if I'm not mistaken. And he hadn't really worked out for him there. I don't think he was altogether happy, so he was looking for a return. And Stefan Reuter, I think, had also felt that he'd gone as far as he could do at Juve. Bearing in mind this was not the, you know, you know, a few years from hence, you know, that Juve team would write history books. But this was still very much the Juve that was living under the shadow of AC Milan at the time. And I think that Michael Mayer was in a position to be able to capitalise on perhaps a degree of, of a desire for these players to return home. 
And also it's a point in the history of the Bundesliga where these are not golden days for Bayern Munich. I mean, like that three-way title race from the season before. I mean, Bayern Munich were nowhere near. <laughs> you know, they were nowhere near that title. It was, it was a different time. Again, that was a change pretty quickly. I mean, Bayern don't stay quiet for long, even back then. So, so there, was a, there was a window of opportunity whether or not there was the money, that's less clear. I mean, obviously there was the money because they spent it, but it is a lot of money for a club that had hitherto been aspired to being at best a, a mid-table side for most of the 1980s. And in fact, being far short of that, to suddenly be in the market for these kind of players. And the big cash payout that came to Dortmund was a year or so hence. So it was an interesting move, but again, it signalled the intentions and the ambitions of the club to become a contender. But it also acts as a bit of a portent for the club's future in terms of how they manage their finances, which we will discuss later on. <laughs> yes, there's a reason why it's called the rise and fall. And fall, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> of Borussia <laughs> Dortmund this series. <laughs> well, with those new signings in place, uh, BFB continued to do well, both domestically and in the UEFA Cup, as you mentioned. So um, in the Bundesliga, uh, Borussia Dortmund finished fourth. But more significantly, they even reached the UEFA Cup final that season. So if you would have to highlight any of these matches from that campaign and what they signified, uh, which matches would you choose? Um, I mean, I think that the Auxerre game, I can't remember what round that was in. I think that was in the semi-final. It was a really close game, really hard fought. And, and I, th I think just showed the credentials that Dortmund had and the, the team that they were developing into. Ozera are a bit of a miracle story themselves uh, because obviously yeah, it was when Giroud was in charge and they're a relatively small provincial club, but they're well matched and it was a very, very exciting game. But, but the final is, was against Juve. Uh, the significance of the Juve game is more to do with what happens after, I think, and the fact that you know we, we kept coming across Juve in the European competition through the 1990s and we got a bit of a rivalry going on, which culminated obviously in 1997. So I think those are the two that I would I would probably spotlight as 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 standout results and the standout performances. Another thing that I would note down from that period as well is the fact that there was a guy called Stefan Klaus who was turned into Borussia Dortmund's first choice keeper back in those early nineties, and he he was certainly a significant player for the rest of of you know those glory days of the nineties, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember, I think, for any successful, truly successful football club, you know, it's not necessary by any means. But I think it's important that if you've got some homegrown players in your starting eleven, part of your backbone of your squad, then, you, you know, your chances of success are, are going to be greatly enhanced. And uh, Stefan Kloff is a top class goalkeeper and also a Dortmunder and had come through the youth ranks. I mean, he played for some local teams in the area, he played for a team in Irving, which is a district of Dortmund, and he played for uh, Eintracht Dortmund. I don't know whether they're still existent, actually. I wouldn't mind going along and watching them, actually. It's a cool name. And, and yeah, and then came into the team. And, you know, to have someone who, you know, could play such a pivotal role, you know, we talk about the money that they spent, you know, on, on players, and they did and will spend large amounts of money on players. But like to have someone come in, you know, as your man between the sticks for so many years through such a, you know, golden period of your history is very significant. I think it's easy to forget about goalkeepers sometimes. Um, but yeah, it was huge, hugely significant. I mean, as also was Martin Cree, for example, and of course, Lars Ricken, you know. Lars Ricken, who would uh, join the side a little bit later, he'll play a significant role in one of those matches against Juventus Turin. 
we will talk about that later on. But uh, let's just sum up now that we're nearing the end of part one. Well, so far, things are seemingly going swimmingly for Borussia Dortmund. They're in the upper regions of the table. They were even in you know, contention to win the Bundesliga in one of those two seasons we've talked about so far. They're doing well in international competitions. All that is really missing is, is that first elusive title under the new regime of Michael Mayer and Ottmar Hitzfeld. But if not, that will be coming up in part two of our program. go again. Uh, it's time for part two of the first episode of our series on Borussia Dortmund's fall and rise and rise again in the early 90s, late 90s and early 2000s. Well, uh, so far we've been discussing what Michael Myers and Otmar Hitzfeld's entry at the club have meant. Uh, we've talked about some key players who joined this Borussia Dortmund side in the early 90s, but now that Borussia Dortmund had lost the UEFA Cup final against Juve in the 92-93 season, they finished fourth in the Bundesliga. Somehow, Michael Meyer and some of the other people in the upper echelons of the club said to themselves at that point, titles! Damn it, we need some damn titles. And that is actually precisely what the club told the public after that rather successful season that ended up with uh, the loss of the UEFA Cup final. So ahead of the 93-94 season, Borussia signed another international in Karl-Heinz Riedler, a former Werder Bremen player, and manager Michael Meyer said that the club wanted to win the championship this season, not just any title. I mean, they wanted the championship straight away. Well, that didn't happen as the Black and Yellows finished fourth that season. However... Michael Meyer coined a phrase that was going to be the credo of the club going forward. Meyer said, quote, We are investing in stones and legs. Wir investieren in Steine und Beine. Which, you know, you might have uh, remembered from the title of this episode. So, now that I've been rather long-winded about this, Terry, can you tell me what were the crucial elements of that new strategy that Michael Meyer had, uh, you know, told the public about? Uh, TV money, Nick. In essence, it was TV money. The run to the UEFA Cup final yielded a, a huge amount of TV money for, for Borussia Dortmund because at the time in which TV money was being distributed, it was shared out equally amongst the German clubs who were participating in the European competitions um, round per round. And in fact, the, all the other clubs, uh, including famously Stuttgart, who uh, fielded an ineligible player against Leeds United, made early exits from their respective European competitions, except Dortmund. Yes, that was Christoph Damm's second biggest mistake yeah. of his managerial career. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's uh, astonishing to think about that, really, how that happened. I mean, I, I, I remember that very well because I remember watching the organised replay on at the Camp Now in, in front of hardly any fans in the Camp Now. Uh, anyway, uh, that's aside. Um, that's for the Stuttgart podcast. We can get someone else for that. So anyway, the Dortmund making all the way to final meant basically all of that TV revenue money all went to Dortmund and it gave them that financial platform to then start investing in, as you say, stones and legs. And obviously the stones are, we're talking about the facility. So we're talking about upgrading the academy, the training facilities rather, uh, uh, making changes to the stadium, although that will come a little bit later, to be fair, the changes, the big changes to the Westfalen, but developing and increasing, improving and expanding on the foundations 
almost like the physical foundations of the football club. So that you've got a club that is able to, to have the facilities to be able to support the legs, which were the players. And the club went on a transfer strategy of signing, you know, frankly, some of the best footballers in the world <laughs> and getting them from the Italian Serie A, which uh, was the acknowledged best division, certainly in Europe, if not the world at the time. I mean, it's, it's certainly a safe fire strategy to get the best players from the best league in the world because then you know you, you are getting quality. But, you know, if you have made it in the best league that there is on the planet, uh, you might be slightly more expensive than that guy with potential from the Eredivisie. And um, as we'll see, the prices that Borussia Dortmund had to pay for these guys are going to come and bite them in the ass a few years down the line. But, you know, we've talked about the 93-94 season now, so let's talk about what happened the following season as you said you know the club put some physical foundations into action and uh, but besides the buildings that they were building they needed more expensive legs and they came from italy as you said and, and namely they were andreas Müller, brazilian defender julio cesar both of them coming from juventus not cheap but yes a massive improvement of the team and you know if we Take a rundown on, of, you know, of the players we've been mentioning so far on this episode. We have Stefan Klaus, homegrown uh, goalkeeper, probably the cheapest guy in terms of the money that Borussia Dortmund spent on him on total. But then there are Matthias Sammer, Stefan Reuter, Stefan Chapuisat, Karl-Heinz Riedler. And, you know, additionally, there was also a player called Michael Zorc, who already was at the club. And around the corner, there was a young talent by the name of Lars Ricken, who... You know, he was on the verge of his breakthrough and, well, all of that meant that suddenly, going into the 94-95 season, you had quite a team, right? Yes, it was extraordinary. I and mean, obviously, yes, I think you're right. I mean, they, they paid a premium for these players. But I think, that, again, the fact that so many, uh, a number had come from Juve were, were you know, again, were reflective of, of the times and maybe taking advantage of a bit of a clear out that was happening there. But it was all properly coordinated. All of these players worked out. There were no bad signings among them. I mean, you obviously you mentioned Michael Zork as well, which you know we were talking. I was talking earlier about you know Klaus and Cree and and, and Ricken. Obviously, Michael Zork, who's been there since the 1970s by now and is in the veteran stage of his career. Uh, if I remember rightly, he was like he was notching double figures still in goals scored back then. I mean, like you know, we're not a veteran in name only. You know, still you know very much, and the captain of the side, a very very important part of the player. So yeah, it was a it was a yeah comfortably the best team in the Bundesliga that they had assembled with easily the best coach, and you know from a recruitment point of view it was a flawless exercise it did exactly what it was supposed to do but as we often keep alluding to <laughs> there's a big but at the end of all of this <laughs> but that doesn't come until a little bit later <laughs> yes well let me allow you to to bathe a little bit more in the glory that that was to happen at first and well all of that included actually our two teams uh Borussia Dortmund and Werder Bremen and um painful as it may be for me as a Werder Bremen fan to talk about the 94-95 season well this was another one of those great seasons in the 90s that went all the way down to the last match day of the season not like today when Bayern are basically champions you know by by February and uh, suddenly you see like youth players popping up that you'll never see again because you know who cares Bayern are already champions so that wasn't the case back then 
So painful as it may be for me as a Werder fan, who, who still remember this because I'm actually old enough to have seen this happening in front of my eyes. Tell me, what was the situation going into this match day, the last match day of the 94-95 season? And what happened? So, yeah, so, I mean, Bremen needed to go to Bayern on the final day of the season in order to, to get something from this. And Dortmund obviously needed to beat Hamburg. And Dortmund did, and uh, they won 2-0 and claimed the title. But you should remember Bayern, again, not, not the Bayern that we know of. They, were, they finished the season sixth in the table. They weren't that good, but, uh, but there was no way, obviously, I think they were never going to stand for you know any, any team coming to their patch and winning the title on their patch. And, and they lost the game 3-1, Bremen, and Dortmund uh, got away with it. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously very sad for, for Bremen. But I think that that was always going to be a danger when you've got Bayern in your last game of the season. You need to have concluded your business by then, don't you really, Nick? Yeah, and, you know, Werder Bremen cannot ever really expect any help from HSV, especially on this. I mean, uh, uh, most of these HSV players were probably already on holiday as, as they, they didn't have anything to play for. They didn't play against relegation and they didn't have to play play for a European finish. So um, Yeah, they finished 13th in the table, didn't they? So they were yeah. never that much cop to begin with. Bayern actually finished outside the direct qualification for European competition that season. I think back then there was still the, what was it called? The Intertoto Cup? Did Maybe they played that? Yeah, assuming of course, I mean, as you know what, I don't know the Intertoto Cup from the 1990s in Germany, but I mean, for a while in England, for example, it was all done by fair play. So even then, I don't know whether or not that would have done, but maybe in Germany, yes. I don't remember Bayern playing in the Intertoto. I know this is not a Bayern history podcast, but as an aside, I'm not sure I remember Bayern ever playing in the Intertoto Cup. I mean, the, the astonishing thing is that Bayern finished outside direct qualification for European competition. Well, it's astonishing now, but it wasn't astonishing then. I mean, like, you know, they weren't that good. Think about yeah. that. Think about that. That that used to be a normal thing. I know, I know. I mean, <sighs> You know, I mean, once old people tell you, well, things were better in the past, and you think, <laughs> well, right. Yeah, I think in this case, old time, things I'm... were better in the past. Yes, yes, they were, <laughs> absolutely. Just because that's said by old timers doesn't mean it isn't true. But it just goes to show you, doesn't it? I mean, like, this is what titles should be. Like, they should be hard to win. You should need every minute of a season sometimes. You should need every minute of a season sometimes to win a title. And I mean, this is how it should be done. I mean, these days, when it comes to Bayern Championship celebrations, they barely have to dust over the marine plots in Munich. I mean, they've become so common. People are just like, meh, I can go next year. Anyways, that is a massive digression. And let's continue on our road of what happened with Borussia Dortmund. So, yes, they won the title in the 94-95 season. The following season, BVB invested in even some more legs. And there was the aforementioned Jürgen Kohler, who joined from Juventus. Uh, Ruben Sosa joined from Inter. Jörg Heinrich, a young left-back on the verge of the German national team, was brought in from Freiburg. And additionally, there was that marquee signing of Heiko Herrlich, who came for the record fee of 11 million Deutsche Mark from Borussia Mönchengladbach. Now, that transfer ruffled some feathers, as Uli Hoeneß, yes, Bayern's Uli Hoeneß, his hat was spinning at the time as he was hearing about that transfer. He didn't know... How on earth anybody could spend that much money on a player? So how did all of these investments pan out for the club? Yeah, I mean, I should have held off referring to Jürgen Kurler until the following season. You're quite right. Kurler was a club legend. 
I don't think there's any getting around that. He did a magnificent job. I described him in the book as, you know, he was both capable of being a proper clean shorts defender, you know, but he was also capable of doing the really gritty stuff. He could do the last ditch tackles. He could do the clearances off the line. You know, he could really get in the faces. Yeah, just ask Eric Cantona. But in, we it, get to yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a story about that, isn't there? About about particularly about Kohler and Cantona. But he could also do the good positional stuff. He was a he was an intelligent defender and, and and a great addition. Ruben Sosa had some brilliant cameos for Dortmund, but perhaps not quite so much. Herlich is the interesting one. Because, yeah, as you said, there'd been a, an agreement for him to leave for a certain fee, uh, a gentleman's agreement, or he said a verbal agreement to leave Gladback for a certain fee. And, it, you know, it, when it came to an offer coming in from Dortmund, Gladback, uh, this is according to Heiko Herlich, Gladback sort of like said, well, no, we don't want to sell you. So he, 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 he agitated and eventually, you know, after much recriminations, that deal did go through. And I think, if I'm right in remembering, Nick, there was also some interest from Bayern, which kind of made things a little bit more complicated too. Yeah, which certainly drove up the price, I would imagine. But again, I mean, if, if some of our younger listeners are listening to uh, this podcast, uh, I, I think they'll be surprised that, you know, up until Mark Royce's signing in uh, 2012 or 13. Other teams could compete with Bayern for players. Whoever was sort of like around the Champions League places over the last couple of years could compete with Bayern for most players. But that is not the case anymore. No, although, I mean, I might perhaps suggest that Nico Schlotterbeck has perhaps bucked that trend because I, I believe that he was given a firm offer from Bayern and that it would have come in as more money, but he made the commitment to Dortmund. And again, this is a bit of an aside because we're talking about history rather than current affairs. I wonder whether or not Schlotterbeck has taken the view that if he goes to Bayern now and he plays well and does well, he will be a Bayern player for the rest of his career, which of course is fine because you know those streets are laden with gold and silver. But if he has any ambitions about maybe playing outside of Germany, then he would probably be in a better position to do that from Borussia Dortmund who do sell their players and do recognise that they are often something of a staging post for younger players to go on. And I wonder whether or not he's made that slightly smarter move. But I think that's the only way forward when you're competing with Bayern is to be able to say, actually say to them, and say, well, look, if you come to us three years down the line, we get an offer We'll, we won't kick up too much fuss for you to move on. We won't be taken for granted, but we will move you on. You go to Bayern, they will sell you when they are ready to sell you. And that's that. I'm making it sound like Bayern is some kind of prison, and it isn't. But I'm just saying that if you're a young player who is perhaps thinking about options outside of Germany, then actually Dortmund might be the smarter move for you in the shorter term. But anyway, that's just my opinion. No, Bayern is not a present. It's vice versa heaven. <laughs> Anyways, that 95-96 season, it panned out well for Borussia Dortmund as they once again won it. <laughs> yes. They won it in front of Bayern München that season, actually. And, well, uh, that meant that they qualified for the Champions League the following season. And, you know, these days, the Champions League is really the pinnacle of European football. There's basically no trophy that yields more rewards than winning that title. So that's why Real Madrid, Bayern München, 
Manchester City, Liverpool, all of these sides. That's why they're gagging, gagging to win that title. That's because that title has become more important than your national championship, basically. But back in the 90s, that was slightly different, wasn't it? So ahead of the 96-97 season, Borussia Dortmund once again invested into those legs, uh, bringing in German international central defender René Schneider from Hansa Rostock, who'd won the European Championship with uh, Germany. Uh, there was that midfielder, Paolo Sousa, who joined from Juve. And, of course, Scottish legend Paul Lambert, who made the trip across the channel from Motherwell, but this time around, even though the names were actually quite big this time as well, the strategy didn't work out quite as well in the Bundesliga, did it? No, um, it didn't. And there were some accusations from, uh, I think, the president, Gerd Niebaum, at the time, who was suggesting that the players at, at, at one stage were putting too much emphasis on the, on the Champions League run because obviously Dortmund went on a great Champions League run. It's probably worth just marking the distinction at this point. I, you know, for players, obviously the European Cup is, you know, super prestigious. It's going to be the highest honour, maybe the higher honour over winning your domestic title. You know, it, maybe not. I mean, I think it depends on the player, but it was hugely prestigious and understandable if some of those players had taken their eye off the ball somewhat on their run to the final. But as far as the club were concerned, yeah, the ultimate priority was winning the Bundesliga. It was becoming necessary. And it was becoming necessary to a somewhat worrying degree. The fact that the club were making public statements. You know, you had the president making public statements, expressing concern about the club's form in the league at the time. You know, ideally you don't want your officials making those kind of statements because it's not cool, apart from anything else. But I think it also betrayed the kind of financial pressure that the club were run under. They had spent large amounts of money and were you know, looking for that kind of return and, and, and needed a return that came with winning the Bundesliga and indeed re-qualifying for the Champions League, although obviously they did do that because they won. So I think, it, again, it was a portent for what was to come. And yeah, obviously Dortmund finished, a, you know, by their standards, a relatively poor third. I think it's also worth bearing out, Nick, that, you know, by this point that this team had a good run together. They played a heck of a lot of football, played a lot of winning football, and it might not be altogether a surprise that perhaps it was felt that the squad needed a bit of a refresh as well. So there may, be, it may well have just been a feeling that perhaps this era was coming to an end and there was time for, a, it's time for some new players. And dare I say, even a new coach. Well, you mentioned that Champions League run, though. So um, tell me, how did that pan out? How, how did Dortmund go about their business in the Champions League that year? Well, they were placed in a group with a, a, a relatively winnable group, I think. I mean, Atletico Madrid, who were a decent side then. There's no getting around it. Maybe not quite as strong as they were. But they actually finished second in that group to Atletico Madrid, albeit equal on points. And then they were in with Lodz. I can't pronounce Polish names. Vidzu Lodz, I apologise, uh, and Stau Bucharest. Obviously, well, obviously they won the final. So, you know, they played Auxerre again in a quarterfinal. And I think, you know, leaving aside the final, the standout game for that was going to be, was obviously the game against Manchester United. You know, high profile football club, one of the most famous clubs ever. They hadn't played Man United, I think, in European competition probably since 1956, perhaps. They played the Busby Babes. And then they were playing Ferguson's team, uh, and, you know, a, a, a team of great players, including Eric Cantona. 
and they they managed to to win that game uh, over two legs by two goals to nil. It's Rene Trescoff who's my favourite story from that. To be fair, because there was quite quite a lot of injuries going into that game, and he'd been this kind of bit part player, and he scored for a deflected shot to make it one nil. I think in the first leg. Rene Trescoff, a legend in Berlin and uh, Dortmund as well. Yeah, yeah, absolute. Uh, yeah, apologies for the poor pronunciation. And uh, I mean, I think that's a fantastic story. The other story to that, of course, is Jurgen Köhler who only a couple of days earlier, sad, tragically, his wife had lost their, or they had lost their unborn child. And they had both together taken the decision to, to continue and for him to play. And he, over that course of, the, of that semi, both semi-finals, he did an amazing job looking after Cantona and keeping United out of that side. It was a devastating blow for Ferguson's United. And it actually, I suspect, also acted as a precursor to, to Cantona's uh, premature retirement, it should be said. So it was a significant football match in in football history, not just for the fact that it was also a, a European Cup semi-final. Well, and in that final, who did you run into then? Well, who else but Juve? <laughs> <laughs> and Juve had an amazing side. I mean, like, just giving you an, an idea of just how amazing that side was, uh, Alessandro Del Priero was on the bench. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean that, that, yeah, I mean, Zinedine Zidane uh, obviously was the, was the linchpin, but Alan Boxic was in that side. And a, a number of, of players, uh, it, typically the names escape me, but I'm sure I could look them up. And it was an extraordinary game of football. It was held in Munich as well, which is a, a wonderful thing to happen. So Dortmund didn't have to travel very far. And I guess could enjoy a degree of uh, home advantage as well over that to, to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, just looking at that, that Juve side, you've got Vieri's in there, Boxic, you know, Delivio. Peruzzi, Deschamps, you know, Jugovic. I mean, well, man alive. How on earth? But then you look at look at Dortmund and you've got Chapuisat, you've got Reuter, you've got Lambert, you've got Kurler, Paolo Sosa, you know, Jörg Heinrich, Karl-Heinz Riedler. These were Matthias Sammer. What a bunch of players. Andy Muller, my God. I mean, like, just so many good players. So while narratively, you know, Dortmund were like maybe the underdogs, but... They won that game fair and square with some amazing footballers. But yeah, I mean, the, the story of the of, of the game, it, it really, I, I guess, one is Paul Lambert and Zinedine Zidane, I think. Because, you know, like Kurla looked after Cantona, Lambert looked after Zidane. And really, you know, I'd almost go so far as to say him in his pocket, which is a, you know... Slight exaggeration, because I don't think cause anybody truly ever had Zidane in their pocket throughout his playing career. <laughs> But kept him quiet enough to avoid as much damage being done. And Dortmund won the game 3-1. And of course, the signature moment in that final is Dortmund's third goal scored by Lars Ricken, who came off the bench after. And after, what, five seconds, he uh, scored the goal. Well, I think that is uh, ending our first episode of uh, Borussia Dortmund's Rise and Fall and then Rise Back from the Ashes. Well, Terry, it's been a blast chatting to you about uh, this topic. Uh, before I let you go, tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter. And more importantly, <laughs> where can they find your work? 
So you can find me on Twitter at Terry DeFellin if you want to talk to me, correct any historical inaccuracies that come out of this show, by all means. Um, but uh, I think more importantly, uh, you can find my work in a book. It's called Borussia Dortmund, A History in Black and Yellow. It is available on Amazon and direct from the publisher in Octi Books if you're in the UK and Europe, but the ebook version will be released very, very shortly. And so you, if you're an international listener, if you're listening from the United States, for example, then you can buy the ebook there. You might find that that will help you with terms of postage and packaging. And uh, if you've enjoyed this, I hope you will enjoy reading the book as well. I certainly did. Uh, excellent stuff, Terry. Uh, you can find me, Nick Viltagen, on Twitter as well. You can find me at Musings. If you have any questions or suggestions regarding this podcast series or anything else that we're producing on Talking Foosball, you can hit us up collectively at Talking Foosball. Make sure to give us a review in iTunes as it helps more people to find this podcast. Take a closer look at our Facebook page and like that too if you're so inclined. You know, uh, spend your money on our Patreon page if you want. This episode has been produced by Aiden Rantoul. Hopefully you join us for the next episode of this mini-series where we'll discuss the downfall of B4B. Until then, it is goodbye for now.